It is written in the second chapter of Acts. Then they glad then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added to them about three thousand souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the ecclesia daily such as should be saved. This is the first record that we have of an ecclesia after the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles. Oh, that your ecclesia and mine might have the, pur- have the purity that they would manifest at that time. We quote now from Eureka, Volume 1, under the heading, The Apostolic State of Christendom. Brother Thomas writes, The spiritual condition of the ecclesias in this state of things may be learned from the writings of the apostles and others as extant in the New Testament. Their faith in the things of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ was unmixed with Nicolaitanism or philosophy and vain deceit after the after the tradition of men and the elements of the world. And it worked by love and purified the heart. There was among Christians, as the rule, a perfectly unselfish devotion to the interests of the truth and to the well-being of one another. Their works labor, and patience were without rebuke. They labored for the name and did not faint, although their labor endangered their lives, liberty, and goods. The rule was poor in this world, rich in faith. The reverse of this was the exception. When they received the word, they received it gladly and were immersed. And then, continuing, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and of prayers. And while in their, and while in their first love, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, and great grace was upon them all. In this primitive condition of affairs, the ecclesias were all the heritages or clergy of God, constituting the flock, while the rulers or elders were its feeders under the supremacy of the chief shepherd at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. These ruling brethren took the oversight of the flock, not by constraint, but willingly. 
not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And they demean themselves not as lords and reverends, but as examples of the generality of their brethren in the faith. End of quote. How long this happy and uncorrupted condition lasted, we do not know for sure. However, Paul, a few, few years down the road, warned of the coming man of sin, and also that the mystery of iniquity doth already work. This falling away, this apostasy, waxed worse and worse. This continued until the false apostles of the synagogue of Satan gained the ascendancy. The seven ecclesias of Asia Minor have their respective states of spirituality left on record to show us how false apostles worked and were able to work in their midst. As an extension of this, I might ask of your ecclesia and mine, those represented tonight, and I think most of them, if not all of them, I hope are on the screen, how much have false apostles been allowed to work in our midst? I have some one-word definitions for the seven ecclesias, which are not, origi not original with me, but I think they aptly describe the status of each ecclesia, and I will show them as we proceed. How about your ecclesia and mine? Are we a 20th century Thyatira or perhaps an Ephesus? Or are we a Smyrna? Where were these original, original ecclesias several hundred years later? Did they survive? Who removed their lampstand? Are there lessons here for us? As we come to consider the brotherhood of today, we will attempt to relate ourselves to some of the conditions that existed in the ecclesias of Asia Minor. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, Paul says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, and then the apostle sets out to describe all the different traits that man will exhibit in the last days. The instruction that we receive from all this is multifaceted. Perilous times will exist in the world. Among our contemporaries, and how about in the brotherhood? Will there be those amongst us who will cause us to experience this very thing? Will the social problems existing all around us 
infiltrate the Brotherhood. We know it has happened in the past. Probably everyone here has had some type of study concerning the seven ecclesias. You will remember that our Lord said to each ecclesia, I know thy works. What he was really saying was, I know how you are living. It stands to reason that if Jesus knew how the first century ecclesias were living, that he also knows how we are living. Make no mistake about it. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Each letter was addressed to the star angel, who I understand represents the elders of the ecclesia. In our day, we might call them the arranging board. At the conclusion of each letter, the Spirit said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith, unto the ecclesias. Thus, the star angel had a choice. The message could be heeded or it could be ignored. And your ecclesia and mine face the same type of situation. When a problem arises in our ecclesias in matters of doctrine or walk, the arranging brethren have a choice based on holy writ, for it alone provides the answer. Either the situation is corrected or it is tolerated. He that hath ears to hear. The Ecclesia at Ephesus has been named Loveless, as having less love than at its establishment. This Ecclesia had some features of commendation in that they investigated potential wolves in sheep's clothing. They were able to correctly identify that the Nicolaitans were not Christadelphians that they were trying to enter the Ecclesia for the express purpose of undermining all that they had ever stood for and to separate brethren from the faith. Our Lord opposed the position of Ephesus regarding their departure from their first love. And what was that first love? In the Apostle John's epistle, he said, And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. Perhaps Ephesus was beginning to lose their original zeal for the truth. Whatever the problem, they were instructed to repent and do the first works. Failure to do so would result in the removal of their lampstand. Can your ecclesia and mine be objective enough to be able to discern 
whether we have lost or are losing our first love, Smyrna has been named persecuted. The message addressed to this ecclesia was one of general commendation. Although they had tribulation and were poor, yet they were rich in faith. And isn't it true that tribulation is a builder of character? Prosperity certainly is not. To this man will I look, says Isaiah, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. James said, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? Persecuted is a fitting name for this ecclesia, because they underwent intense persecution at the hands of Trajan for ten years. Smyrna had problems with pretenders in the truth, as do some ecclesias of today. Your ecclesia and mine are far from being immune to wolves in sheep's clothing. Doctrinally, there have been Christadelphians who discount creation who believe that Jesus had clean flesh, who say that knowledge without baptism will bring a person to the judgment seat. Morally, there are Christadelphians that have had terrible problems with alcohol and drugs, that have taken human life, that no longer consider marriage a holy thing, that divorce, and remarry. How our star angels handle these departures from the faith will be scrutinized by the Spirit, by our Lord who walks among the lampstands. Pergamos was named over tolerant. The faithful in this ecclesia were in the minority, and perhaps this is the reason that Christ introduced himself or introduces himself as having the sharp two-edged sword. The elders of this ecclesia were not accused personally of any misconduct, but their problem was that they allowed or tolerated these conditions to exist among the flock. The Spirit said, Thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. So hast there also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Who were these people? Brother Thomas tells us that the Nicolaitans were vanquishers of the people. 
and that Balaamites were the wasting or wasters of the people. Although not identified in in Apocalypse as such, many brethren by that time had left the truth. They included Hymenaeus, Alexander, Phygelus, Hermogenes, Demas, and Diotrephes. I think it is interesting that the scriptures tell us that Demas' reason for leaving the truth was that he loved this present world. In comparison to our own world, I have difficulty imagining what it was about the world in that day that would cause Brother Demas to leave the truth. The flesh in all these that have been named had apparently gained the upper hand in their lives, causing them to turn aside unto Satan. The Nicolaitans sought to make the truth compatible with the religions of the world. They wanted the truth to be more popular, to make it more respectable, to make it more fashionable. And this has a ring ring of familiarity, doesn't it? The man Balaam had much of the same characteristics as the Nicolaitans. Though a believer in God, he was a man of bad principles. He professed a zeal for God while anxious to please the worshipers of Baal for reward. It sounds as though he wanted the best of both worlds. He allowed riches and honor to blind him to the responsibilities of the truth. Your ecclesia and mine feel similar effects. Does the materialistic world in which we live affect us? No question about it. Does it eat into our time that should be spent on reading and studying? You know it does. The Nicolaitans and Balaamites want you and they want me in their camp. They want us to be fornicators, to be covetous, to be idolaters, to be railers, to be drunkards, to be extortioners. Balaam wants us too. He wants us to be time wasters, particularly in front of the TV screen. And is the lifestyle of the 90s catching up with us? The Ecclesia of Thyatira has been named compromising. The spirit manifestation is described as having eyes like unto a flame of fire and feet like unto fine brass. 
this description is indicative of anger and judgment. There were some very good qualities here in Thyatira, and they were commended for their love, their service, their faith, their patience, and their works. What was even better was that these qualities had increased so that the last was better than the first. They had not left their first love, as had Ephesus. Why then was the Spirit coming to them in anger and judgment? In Revelation 2.20, it is recorded, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. It is my understanding that the phrase, a few things, is omitted in the Diaglot, in the Revised Standard Version, and in Philip's translation. The implication is that the Spirit is saying, I have this against you. It's not a case of a few things or of a small matter. It manifested itself in many ways. Clearly, there were two factions in this ecclesia. One held firm and did not tolerate the Jezebel influence of which the Spirit addresses them as many as have not this doctrine. Does your ecclesia and mine have two or more factions at odds with each other? To understand the magnitude of the Spirit's concern, the name Jezebel means, she dwells not with me. Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, was a vicious woman of a depraved character. By virtue of this, she represents all deceivers, whether false prophets or false teachers. The natural Jezebel has come to be represented by the figurative Jezebel, and as such, this adulteress is in fierce competition with the chaste virgin for position as the bride of Christ. Only the chaste virgin, virgin will win the battle. Is there a 20th century application to this influence that wreaks havoc in the first century? Your ecclesia and mine commits fornication when its members mix with the world. Our ecclesia sacrifice unto idols when anything stands between it and Jesus, the Messiah. Spiritual fornication suggests an unhallowed union with the world and blasphemy against deity. We can get the 20th century application when we read from, from 
Ephesians chapter 5. Look at Ephesians 5, we'll read verses 1 to 7. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints. Not once. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. If we haven't figured it out by now, let me tell you that Jezebel, Balaam, and the Nicolaitans want you and me. They want us to take liberty with the scriptures. They want us, you and me, to introduce novel ideas that can and will spread like leaven and which will soon find acceptance. They want us to take pleasure in unrighteousness. Does your ecclesia and mine have any of these problems? To show that our age is not unlike some others, I have another quote from Volume 1 of Eureka, which concerns the brethren about 150 years beyond 96 A.D. And this was written concerning the Thyatiran state. Brother Thomas writes, Cyprian was converted to the faith A.D. 246. He was a professor of elocution in the city of Carthage in the Roman Africa and a man of wealth, quality, and dignity. About 12 years comprehended the whole scene of his Christian life from 246 to A.D. 258. He was converted under the reign of Philip and put to death under that of Valerian. Two years after his conversion, he became the bishop of the ecclesia in Carthage, a dignity which, through the growth of superstition, was advancing to excess. Though expressions savoring of haughtiness and asperity 
are to be found in his writings, excited by particular provocations, ambition was not his vice. His zeal was fervid and sustained by a temper remarkably active and sanguine, yet allied with the milder qualities of gentleness, love, and humility. He was a very different and superior character to Origen, and a remarkable consequence of which that while Origen among the pagans succeeded in gaining the favor of the great and was heard by them with patience, Cyprian could not be endured in his preaching and writings except by real Christians. Brother Thomas continues, My purpose in the introduction of Origen and Cyprian to the reader is not a bio biographical sketch and comparison of the men, but simply as representative, representatives of their times. Persecution reigned with astonishing fury in the beginning of Cyprian's pastorate, and he recognizes it a punishment upon the church for the iniquity of professors. In a treatise of his called The Lapsed, it was an affecting account of the falling away of the generality from the spirit of Christianity which had taken place before his conversion and which God, which moved God to chastise them. If the cause of our miseries, says he, be investigated, the cure of the wound may be found. The Lord would have his family to be tried. And because peace had corrupted the discipline divinely revealed to us, the heavenly chastisement hath raised up our faith, which had lain almost dormant. And when, our, and when by our sins we had deserved to suffer still more, the merciful Lord so moderated all things that the whole scene rather deserves the name of a trial rather than a persecution. Each had been bent on improving his patrimony and had forgotten what believers had done under the apostles and what they ought always to do. Listen to this. They were brooding over the arts of amassing wealth. The pastors and the deacons each forgot their duty. Works of mercy were neglected, and discipline was at its lowest ebb. Luxury and effeminacy prevailed. Meretricious arts and dress were cultivated. Fraud and deceit were practiced among brethren. Christians could unite themselves in marriage with unbelievers, could swear not only without reverence, but even without veracity. With haughty asperity, they despised their ecclesiastical superiors. They railed against one another with outrageous acrimony, 
and conducted quarrels with determined malice. Even many bishops, who ought to be guides and patterns to the rest, neglecting the peculiar duties of their stations, gave themselves up to secular pursuits. They deserted their places of residence and their flocks. They traveled through distant provinces in quest of pleasure and gain, gave no assistance to needy brethren, but were insatiable in their thirst for money. They possessed estates by fraud and multiplied usury. What have we not deserved for such a conduct? From this testimony of Cyprian, it is evident that the falling away from the apostolic standard had become intense in the middle of the third century. It was the very type itself of what exists in our day, end of quote. This falling away was evident in Cyprian's day of the mid-200s. It was evident in Brother Thomas's day in the mid-1800s. And it is very evident in our day. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 to 11, the prophet has this to say, Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Sardis was named the Sleeping Ecclesia. Unlike Pergamos and Thyatira, who had those glaring opponents to the truth of which we have been speaking, Sardis was spiritually ready to die. No doubt they had their faults, but the Spirit does not disclose them. They were not criticized openly for having some type of evil, nor were they guilty of giving license to any outward appearance of evil. There were a few there who had not defiled their garments, and they were told that they would walk in white. Their ecclesia appeared outwardly to be a thriving assembly, for they had a name which they lived. It behooves your ecclesia and mine to examine the name which we live now while we still have the opportunity. 
Surely we do not want to become known in the eyes of the Spirit as a sleeping ecclesia. Philadelphia has been named Opportunity. The angel of this ecclesia received no condemnation from the Spirit. How refreshing this was to this ecclesia that had little strength to receive commendation instead of condemnation. There were some in this ecclesia who said they were Jews, but were not. These, in all probability, no longer belonged to the ecclesia. Finally, there was Laodicea, who was named Complacent. This ecclesia did not receive any commendation at all. What is it to be lukewarm? One definition is not enthusiastic. The spirit cannot accept moderation in the appreciation of spiritual things. It is much easier to become Laodicean in our thinking and in our actions than it is to become overzealous. The Laodicean Ecclesia had a higher opinion of themselves, for they boasted of their riches and their material gain. They were very proud of their accomplishments. Their haughty attitude was condemned by the Spirit in these words, Thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Nevertheless, in this situation, the Spirit holds out the promise of repentance. If they would but come in to him and sup with him. As we look now at our respective ecclesias, we find ourselves rich in this world's goods. How is your ecclesia and mine being affected in these evil days? How are we handling the wolves in sheep's clothing? Our environment would certainly lend itself to us becoming loveless, over-tolerant, compromising, sleeping, and complacent. 
It is no wonder that Jesus said unto his followers, How hardly shall a rich man enter into the kingdom of God. If the first century ecclesia felt the pressures of the world around them, how much more your ecclesia and mine? Is there anything to be learned from the messages delivered to these seven ecclesias? There is if we rightly divide the word of truth. We need to heed the counsel of the prophet Jeremiah when he said, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way. And what does he say? Walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls.